So we sit down and we have this, you know, an older male professor and we're talking about Halloween and, and he's saying, oh, what are you going as for Halloween? And I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to go as Frida Kahlo or something. <laughs> and he's like, you know, what What about you, Brendan? And <laughs> Brendan's like, I'm going as uh, Meg the Stallion. And he was like, oh, who's that? How, you know, how, what kind of costume, what kind of costume <laughs> would that be? <laughs> And Brendan, Brendan and I make eye contact and I'm just like, how, how am I going to get myself out of that one? Um, literally, oh my like, I was like, wow, I really should have lied. So last time we totally forgot to introduce ourselves. So, you know, we are just really excited about getting this podcast yes. started. So we jumped right in. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to do that today. I'm Alyssa. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm a soon-to-be third-year PhD student in anthropology. Whoop, uh, Soon-to-be. Hey. But actually, really, I mean, it's a month, right? So already there. Um, I'm much. Brendan. And my pronouns are also she, her, hers. And I'm a fourth year, woo child, um, <laughs> PhD candidate. I could say that now. I'm a Yay. <laughs> so exciting. Uh, welcome to our podcast, Zora's Daughters. And just to get started, we want to dedicate this episode to you. That is everyone who tuned in last week, who shared, who rated our podcast, who subscribed. And yes, 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 yes. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. And we really just want to thank everyone who donated to our GoFundMe. We kind of just started it on a whim, really. Um, and we were fully funded in three days, I think, and we've now exceeded it. So we appreciate everybody who donated and each and every person who shared it, liked our post about it. Uh, you know, every action really counts. And so with your help, we've been able to hire two Black women transcriptionists, Alyssa and Camry. And the transcript for our last episode is out. It's great. <laughs> you can <laughs> that, check it out. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's been so inspiring to see the love from our community. And we are just in shock and awe, honestly. We, we yeah. <laughs> the outpouring of support has really just struck us so we have a lot to get through this episode because unfortunately the world is basura in fuego um, <laughs> i see you working your spanish you okay. know I, I <laughs> some of my spanish to use these days um, but i believe that we will win um, just as a yeah. content warning this episode will discuss violent acts against black women in order to highlight um, black women's vulnerability to gendered violence while we will not go into pornographic detail, some content may be triggering for survivors of intimate partner violence like myself. Uh, we will put the times in the show notes if, if you would like to skip over that part. Thanks, Brendan. So let's get right into it with our segment, What's the Word? And that's every episode we will discuss a word that we'll use throughout the episode or a word that's been trending recently and give some context and history to that. So Brendan, what's the word? The word for today this week, always, um, is archetype. Archetypes are similar to stereotypes in that they refer to a common understanding or societal understanding about a group. But archetypes are present in literature and popular discourse and also are part of some historical genealogy. 
So we'll go through what, what we mean by that later on. But archetypes are constructed and then are used to justify oppression against certain groups. Stereotypes are often born from archetype, archetypes, popularized versions that we see in the media or, or that we might have conversations about. So most people are familiar with stereotypes, but not necessarily familiar with the archetypes that they come from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there are a lot of these archetypes that are used to describe, or we could even say prescribe, Black women and Black women's actions and behaviors. And so the more you understand them, the more you'll start to see them everywhere. Like I remember last year, Dee and I went to see The Upside, which is that, the remake of that film, Intouchable, is a French film um, with Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston. Hmm. And we walked out of the film and we just looked at each other and we were like, yep, that was, that was some magical Negro stuff right there. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's one of the ones that you'll see, particularly in films um, and TV shows. But so today we'll talk about the Mammy, Sapphire and Jezebel, how they evolved and how and others that have kind of emerged from them and out of them. So Brendan, like last week you were talking about how people have mammified you in the past or continue to. So can you talk a bit about like what that means, what the mammy stereotype is or or archetype is? Yes. So the mammy archetype is basically derived from really forcing black women to do domestic slavery. I mean, domestic slavery. I mean, it was, but domestic labor (laughs) in, um, in these white plantation homes. And so you had these black women who were not able to really take care of their own children but were forced to breastfeed, bathe, clothe, and raise um, these white children on these plantations. And so from that archetype, right, of this, usually she's a plus-size Black woman, a dark-skinned Black woman who is jovial, like she's always mm-hmm. laughing and joking and, oh, honey, let me, let me help you take care of that or let me cook <laughs> you something or let me, you know, rub your feet and whatever. I, I just, I'll do that for you. I'm here yeah. to take care of you. She's the, the mother figure, the mothering Black woman mm-hmm. that is in literature and in movies and TV shows and might not even necessarily appear as a big, the big fat black woman who's always cooking, but you see it. And we'll talk about this in the, when we talk about magical Negro, right. But these, these black characters that are always there to do some type of emotional labor mm-hmm. for, for white folks in particular. Um, so one good example is aunt Jemima, who is not a real person, um, but it's kind of appeared as like this archetype um, Although, I mean, there is some, there is some talk. I mean, I was listening to Still Processing, which is the uh, New York Times podcast. And so they talk about reparations for Aunt Jemima. And so there was a real woman who was, you know, they they would take her to expos and she would talk about, uh, you know, the syrup that, you know, that she made. And so there was a real woman behind the Aunt Jemima character. There's also some ideas or some you know, some narratives that it comes from a song about Aunt Jemima and Mm. um, like, it was actually a a minstrel song, but you can listen to the still processing episode and and learn more about that. But yeah, yeah. I, that is so interesting. So I did not know that, um, that Mm. I thought that it was just really just purely made up. Um, But yeah. And so then you also have the kind of the men's counterpart, which is the Sambo archetype, which is the happy go lucky carefree character 
who, again, his main priority is to make sure that the white people around him are taken care of emotionally and physically. Mm-hmm. And then also our favorite Uncle Tom. <laughs> our favorite. Yeah, I mean, the Uncle Tom is very similar. They're very much there to make white people feel comfortable. And they are thinking about the welfare of white people, of the white people around them, especially and particularly to the detriment of black people. Yep. So moving on to Sapphire, who, you know, a personally personal favorite of mine. Um, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so the Sapphire, she's the dominating black woman. She's strong. She's masculine. She works like a man. She's assertive, much like the Mammy. So the Mammy is also kind of someone who is assertive, but usually in defense of the family that she works mm-hmm. for. Whereas Sapphire, she kind of lacks that empathy and maternal instinct. So she isn't trusted by white people. She doesn't receive the same kind of affection. And so that woman, the Sapphire, she is bitter, which, you know, is a favorite for people to say. Mm-hmm. They love to, saying to, that on Twitter. They love mm-hmm. saying black women are bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she has an attitude and she frequently emasculates black men. And so this archetype, it was reinforced by Amos and Andy, which is, you know, a 1930s radio show. And so that archetype, it evolved into what we would now call the angry black woman stereotype. The angry black woman, she's intemperate, she's intolerant, (laughs) and she hates all y'all black men. Yes, <laughs> I was she say all of you, period, uh, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, and I think also what's important to remember about Sapphire is that she is so angry and bitter that she is actually unlovable and undeserving Mm. of love. Right. So she doesn't just not receive affection from white people, but her anger, quote unquote, isolates her so much to the point where she can't even find this, you know, heterosexual, cisgender, patriarchal relationship that we all should be aspiring for through marriage. Yeah. Um, So we see Sapphire coming out again in the welfare queen we see her coming out again in these depictions of single black mothers as women who just cannot be loved um and that really does play an effect on like how popular portrayals for sure um which yeah like you i'm just trying to think about some in tv that i've seen that would really encapsulate this for sure i mean i i i put um i was thinking about pam who was played by Tashina Arnold in oh, Martin. Uh, yes, absolutely. Martin. Um, <laughs> she was a great, great example of that because she was domineering and she always, you know, she came in and she was belittling the black men that were mm-hmm. on the show. So that is, that is like key to the Sapphire stereotype is that she belittles black men. And we, that is something that we'll come back to when we talk about what we're reading. Um, that, that process of emasculating black men is like, right. And it's like, how much of this emasculation is actually us just telling you the truth? Um, But, you know, I'm... We'll we'll, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. But I think, I mean, I I wanted to build on what you were just saying. This anger, the way that that anger makes the sapphire archetype, makes that woman unlovable. It puts us into this, you know, role. It puts us into this, um, into a double bind. So it Mm -hmm. punishes women, punishes black women, through shame for not so for not achieving this feminine ideal, which is like docile, passive, feminine, non-threatening, which isn't fair because we're in a world where our skin color always already determines us as 
incapable of being feminine. Right. right. And then at the same time, it silences us because it makes us less likely to raise issues, to speak out against injustices, against ourselves in private and in like public or work situations, just for fear of like, of being labeled the angry black woman, the sapphire. Yeah, I think it's really, as we think about um, what we're getting to what we read today, thinking about just the, the power in not being nice, mm-hmm. um, which will come up again and again throughout this episode, especially once we get to the, the real world applications of this. Like for Black women, even though we're caught in that double bind, usually niceness harms us, mm. right? And like, it usually harms us and it comes at the expense of our own emotional health. And so completely, I, I've been thinking about in my own life, the ways that I've silenced myself or been nice and how that's cost me really my own, in some cases, my own sanity, like certain jobs I was working on where I should have just been like, okay, girl, um, you need to set boundaries and mm-hmm. who gives a flying pig's foot about what these people <laughs> think about you. Like you just got to, keep it pushing because at the end of the day, you are the most important person in your life. Um, and I know that's hard to say as a, as someone who is activist as someone who is a scholar to be like, Oh, I'm the most important person in my life. But if I don't prioritize myself, no one else will. Um, and that has been a hard lesson to learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just, just as a black woman saying that I'm the most important person in my life is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope my friend doesn't mind that I talk about this, but her cousin pointed out to her recently that she has essentially been raised or groomed her entire life to kind of take over this role of being the, the caregiver in her family. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, she takes, she will eventually take on the same position that her mom and her grandmother have held before her. Mm. And so for her to be like, no, I'm prioritizing myself. I'm prioritizing my family that I am starting in the, you know, in the future, she doesn't have a family Mm -hmm. at this time, but um, you know, her talking about that, her saying that is, is blasphemous to her family. Yeah. And it's, it's, I would say that it's just perfect though. Right. Like as black women, if we reclaim ourselves, you know, reclaim our time as um, auntie Max, Max, scene taught us Maxine <laughs> you know reclaim our time um it's going to be so much more important for us to lay those boundaries with our family and knowing that the risk is that we will be called into this archetype um mm-hmm. and I don't know I'm kind of getting moved to the point where I'm just like I don't care and there's this excellent article by uh, Bettina Judd called Sapphire as Praxis um mm. that I think I started reading and then I was just like, oh no, I need to be in a whole different headspace <laughs> to to take this because I'm going to want to implement this in my life right this second. Mm. Um, so let me just, <laughs> let me wait till September when I can really start reading and um, digesting things right. again. Um, but I think that moving forward, like Sapphire as Praxis is going to be something, especially as the world is moving towards, you know, whatever this climate is um yeah this uprising yes this uprising and also this right-wing movement that's happening um we are going to have to start setting those boundaries and being um more on top of things 
So also I wanted to move to the Jezebel archetype mm -hmm. because I, you know, have been called the Jezebel in a few moments in my life. And mm -hmm. if you know me as a person, you know that that is not me at all. Um, <laughs> but Jezebel is basically, um, she's a real person. If Well, if you believe that the Bible is like a, a historical text and describes the lives of people. She appears as a queen in the Bible, um, and she is actually married to one of the Jewish um, kings, but she is not Jewish. And she eventually convinces him to leave his religion through witchcraft and through like her sexual prowess. So that's like, you know, the biblical Jezebel. So for black right. women, right, this Jezebel brings on this, you know, the overly sexual, magical kind of woman who just draws you away from this purity, right? So right. Jezebel is someone who will take a white man and make him into something that God won't recognize, quote unquote, um, and lead him to his destruction and his death, basically. And you see that being used or developed during slavery as a justification or really just like a counter argument for why these white men are raping enslaved women. Well, they're saying, well, oh, she seduced me. She used her hoodoo or her voodoo or her, oh, you know, African um, religion to turn me on. Um, and then you also seeing this being applied to, to children, to young girls as well. Right? right. So like, you know, she's, she learned from her mother how to do all of these witchcraft things that, that, compelled me, quote unquote, to, to harm her or to rape her. And so this archetype exists throughout, um, throughout writings about Black women and really plays a harmful role in how we are depicted in media, especially. Mm -hmm. And for myself, like I was, I joined a church at 12 and I was 12 years old and people were claiming that I was a Jezebel, that I had like lust demons, that I was like <laughs> turning their sons away from God. And if you knew what I looked like at 12, you would be like, no, the only thing you're doing is turning people towards the Lord so that they could pray for you. Like if you knew what I looked mm. like at 12, like <laughs> I was not cute. And so it's just like <laughs> the idea that my brilliance, whatever, you know, what, and whatever potential that these women at this church saw caused them to rely on this archetype of a Jezebel to, to ostracize right. me, essentially. I, I can imagine how, how much that must have affected you, mm -hmm. you know, particularly being a child, 12, year old, 12, 12 years old, you are still a child. And I think that a lot of the time it's just about your body type. Mm-hmm. You know, not you specifically, but black girls' bodies. And, you know, this idea that we develop earlier, we develop in ways that are different from white girls. Um, you know, we develop hips and breasts a lot earlier. And so this also contributes to the idea that, like, that we have, um, it contributes to this sexualization that is completely premature. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we talk about on our, you know, we talked about on our Instagram page, we talked about adultification and the adultification bias. And I think that these kinds of things, the idea that like the mind follows the body 
produces this kind of adultification and these ideas about black girls being more sexually mature and thus a Jezebel in the world. Right. And I mean, I, I spent years trying to be accepted um, and not quite understanding, like, why was it that no one would want their children to hang out with me? Like, why, when I come to youth group, why is it that people are like writing notes about me saying like, oh, don't let Brendan meet the new boy because then, you know, something's going to happen. And like, I even walked in on my pastor praying for God to release me from these demons one, one day. And so it's just like, (laughs) and I'm a child, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm Mm -hmm. possessed. And I didn't even know it. And it wasn't until I got much older that I realized that, oh, a lot of this was born from, I don't know if it was a jealousy or just some type of other envy or some other emotion that really caused people to ostracize me because they saw like, they saw how smart I was. They saw like, Mm -hmm. I mean, even though I wasn't cute, I wasn't like, (laughs) I wasn't an ugly child, right? So I had the potential to be a beautiful adult like I know I did have a certain body type I was thinner but I still had like a shape like I mm-hmm. had all these things that you know their daughters didn't um it's fear right it's fear a lot of the time that's what it comes down to people are worried about what you can do what you can do to them what you see particularly when you're smart as a child and you're precocious people are very worried about what what you can see in them and I think that that is one of those things that kind of that contributes to people ostracizing you or talking negatively about you or just basically just trying to push you out of groups and push you mm-hmm. out of situations. Mm-hmm. It was literally like people would not let their children spend time with me because mm-hmm. being around me was going to lead them away from God. And the whole time, like I'm telling you, I'm not doing anything. I'm like going to school, going home trying to read the Bible, praying, like my heart was really in the right place. No, of course you are. Um, Of course that's what you are. It was just like, you know, whatever. And so now that I'm no longer doing that, I'm just like, (sighs) so many years I spent hating myself um, that I wish I could take back. I hear you. Um, And so, so the men's counterpart to that would be the Mandingo, you know, sexually voracious uh, and unable to be civilized as a result. So I think that, so so it works on these two levels, one of purity and one of civilizing, you know, the civilizing project of, of uh, like white colonialism. Mm-hmm. And that Mandingo archetype is what fuels future rape laws, right? And future mm-hmm. lynchings. So it's this idea that black men are hyper sexual and mm-hmm. will rape any and every black woman they see. And so we'll talk a little bit later about the protection of white womanhood and its importance in these archetypes, but it was important to lynch black men um, because it was, that was a sign of them protecting white womanhood Mm -hmm. from this Mandingo stereotype. And so there are, there's actually a movie that was made in 1970s called Mandingo about (laughs) this white woman having an illicit relationship with this, um, with one of no illicit relationship. I mean, you know, can that be possible in slavery, whatever. But like right. she was having sex with one of her um, enslaved men and it, it really highlights this kind of this archetype and what and in the end he ends up dying, right? Because of his right. relationship with this white woman. So it really shows this 
the way that white people imagine this archetype to be um, something that ultimately results in death for black men um, mm -hmm. in particular. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing to really point out is that archetypes have real world consequences. Mm -hmm. It's not just these stereotypes have real world consequences. They affect people every day. It's not just a discourse. It's not mm -hmm. just a narrative. It's not just an idea or a perception. These harm, hurt, and kill people. So mm -hmm. it's very, it's like, it's very important to, to know what they are, to recognize them. So that way we can start dismantling them and avoid perpetuating them. So some of the more contemporary ones would be the welfare queen, which you mentioned earlier, Brendan. And then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, the magical Negro, which you also mentioned, and I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a character who usually supports the white character in a film. And they have some kind of magical power, some kind of insight mm -hmm. that helps the white character out of crisis, you know? So, and, and usually they have no storyline of their own. Um, they just kind of exist to support the, the personal growth of this white person in the film. So John Coffey in The Green Mile is a really good example. You know, she sa he saves this little girl because um, he has this power to bring things back to life. Oh, um, I need to watch that. Movie. Oh, you haven't seen it? <laughs> I no, I'm yeah, like, oh. and, and I mean, and the, the other thing about the magical Negro is that often they have some kind of uh, inner failing. Um, so for him, he was he, well, had I mean, he was developmentally delayed, but mm -hmm. uh, I, gu I guess we can we can say that. And someone, please correct me if I'm not using the right terminology. And so, also uh, an American critic. Uh, literary critic he called Barack Obama a magical negro as well hmm. so and so he wrote like a comic book superhero Obama is there to help hmm. out of the sheer goodness of a heart we need not know or understand okay for as with all magical negroes the less real he seems the more desirable he becomes if he were real white America couldn't project all its fantasies of curative black benevolence on him these, this, along with the black best friend stereotype, that's very, you know, you see that a lot, like Cher and Dion in Clueless. And like, we see that throughout TV shows, movies, you see it in like, in everything, everywhere. Our There's tunes. always some black best friend. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're similar to the magical Negro. They don't have, except they don't have any like kind of powers. They just exist to guide the white character out of crisis. Yeah, their they power is emotional labor. It's like, I'll yes. be a therapist. <laughs> that is my power. They tend to be analysis. <laughs> they tend to be wise, you know, because of because of the, the life that they've had. Mm -hmm. um, or, or they guide them towards some kind of higher purpose. And so what these all have in common is that they really deny black folks inner lives and complexity. Mm -hmm. And they just continue to be the caretaker to whites. Except when through some kind of inner failing, they become their enemy, as in, you know, in the Sapphire, the Jezebel. Yeah. I, hmm, there was a show called Betty on HBO about these like young skateboarders. And most of the people in the show are black, but it really centers the story of this like white queer person. Mm. Um, and how she like surrounds herself with all these black best friends. And she continues, like she'll get like really angry 
and then cause a fight. And then her black best friends have to like pick up the pieces behind mm-hmm. her. So I think that's also, and like you, you see some of their inner lives or some of the complexity behind them, mm-hmm. but the show really centers this and I can't remember her name. I don't know. Um, I was watching this with my partner and I was just like, this show just really irks me because this white woman is starting all these fires. And then it's like her black friends, her, these black queer women have to come behind her and like mm. put them all out and make sure that, you know, I mean, they even end up going to jail for like what? over her. And it's like, wait, is her name Betty? Because that's the name of the show. No, her name's not. I <laughs> I didn't understand the Betty thing because her name is not Betty. And so oh. I'm just like, it starts with a case. I don't know. I don't remember. But, and I mean, I guess I could tell you how really remarkable I thought the show was. I really don't even remember nobody's name from the show. But um, <laughs> it was just like, wow, like, it really shows you how deeply ingrained these archetypes are, like how the mammy kind of reiterates herself um, and becomes in these younger versions, right? Of the, the black best friend, the magical Negro, um, where it might not, like I was saying earlier, like it might not even be this big fat black woman who's taking care of you, but it's these other black people, usually black women around you that are helping you be um, a better person. Mm-hmm. And so What's also just interesting, too, is, is thinking about how these archetypes kind of are polarizing. So you have these archetypes right. that have Black women as the ideal caregiver, but, you know, only for white children yes. and That's only for white people, right? Like, but never, like, we could never actually be good mothers to our own children. Mm. And we're never actually good women to Black men, right? So I think that is like, going to be a great lead in actually to our next segment which is what we're reading for this week and what are we reading Oof, we read a doozy this week <laughs> <laughs> we really did we was ambitious we <laughs> <laughs> um but uh well actually well we, we did read two pieces and we're reading them in conversation which academics love to do so we're, we read sojourner truth her speech ain't i woman uh, and we're reading that kind of in conversation with Hortense Spiller's Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, and American Grammar Book. And we'll link those in the show notes so y'all can have a lot of fun sifting through <laughs> Hortense Spiller's. <laughs> uh, her, her beautiful language um, and very dense language. Yes. You know, the uh, Sojourner Truth piece might take you like a minute and 30 seconds to read. <laughs> and then Horton Spillers, if you're like me, will take you three years. So Ooh. just, you know, I just <laughs> I keep coming back to it over and over again. And each time I see and read something new. So we're just going to like highlight. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm just yeah. so excited. So geeked out about it. <laughs> That's what we do. But I mean, I think we should start with the Sojourner Truth and her speech. And so I really wanted to draw attention to the part where she says, quote, that man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over Mm. mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Mm. Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? Mm. I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? Mm. I have borne 13 children 
and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? So I think that was a really beautiful provocation for us to think about what it means to be a woman because she is speaking at a suffragette convention. So to be a woman and black. And so she's calling attention to the ways that slavery and blackness have excluded her from womanhood. And so we wanted to kind of highlight her, her speech as a part of a genealogy of thinking, which is something that we also love to do as academics. We're taught to think about origins and conversations mm-hmm. that different texts are a part of. And so I think that this one is something that really speaks to what we've been talking about, this kind of like the masculinization of Black women, also the way that we are meant to be caregivers to white children, but we are not allowed. You know, she talks about having 13 children and most of them are sold off. So she is not allowed to be a mother to her own children. Yeah, I think she points really eloquently to literally and like this is what black feminist thinking does right like we point to the conditions of our living and we say yo this is what it is right Mm -hmm. and this is how you're thinking about the world or the way that you have crafted the world falls apart when it comes to me um and christina sharp calls it uh calls this kind of anagrammatical form of blackness where blackness kind of fractures the meaning of things so blackness Mm. fractures the meaning of a woman blackness fractures the meaning of child Mm. because when you say ain't i a woman she's calling attention to the fact that she doesn't have these protections right she doesn't have this kind of what you would call like this white feminine protections where you are too dainty to touch the ground you're too Mm -hmm. dainty to lift yourself up it's like no i'm black so that that shit don't even apply to me like yeah i i have to do all of these things for myself and i have to do things that men do um and so i thought that that was just like a really i mean she probably tore that place down she was <laughs> like okay i'm just gonna tell it to y'all like it is and even later when she talks about she talks about um women getting their rights for to vote and she's like then that little man in black there, he says women can't have as much rights as men Mm because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? Mm -hmm. Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. So she's like, and point blank period y'all are actually also irrelevant right so like like not only (laughs) does she like not only does she say like call attention to this the fallacies in their thinking around what it means to be a woman but she's also like Y'all whole category around what it means to be a man, too, is also needs to be in question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she talks about how it was a woman that turned the world upside down. She's talking about Eve. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just thought that was that was brilliant. So if we can turn the world upside down, why can't we turn it right side up again? Right. And, and why would you deny us the chance to do that? Well, I mean... Why would you? Because you want to hold on to your power and your money and, you know, your carriages or whatever it is that they were holding on to. Property. <laughs> their, their property. property their cotton. Um, <laughs> so it's just like, and then also I like that she says like, your Christ, like this kind mm. of like pointing also to the difference 
um, the difference in understandings around religion and around worship. And she's just pointing to this whiteness, right? This, your Christ, your, your white conception Mm. of Christ. Um, And so I think that was also just, just beautiful. um, Just beautiful. Thank you for that. Like the subtlety of you bringing that out um, is just, yeah, that was some great nuanced, a really great nuanced reading, Brendan. Um, Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, that, that, that is a good kind of lead into mama's baby, papa's maybe. So we'll just tell you a little bit about Hortense Spillers. Uh, She is an American literary critic, black feminist scholar. She's a professor at Vanderbilt University. And so this essay that, that we're reading it's, it's among her most well-known. It's definitely one of the most cited in literary theory. And so what she does is she takes on this pathologi- pathologization. <laughs> oh, wow. You see, this is the thing. Academics, we can write, but there is, you know, we're not always speaking these words that we, t- that we write out. <laughs> um, so she takes on this pathologization of the matriarchal family structure in Black communities. So this idea that black families are always headed up by women, it seemed to be a problem in what's called the Moynihan Report. And we'll get into that in a second. Um, but in this essay, you know, she, she talks about, or she talks about later because she was interviewed by, you know, black feminists, black feminist scholars who were kind of building off of her work. She says that she was writing at that time with a sense of hopelessness but she was also making an effort. She was trying to create language and theory that supported studying black women. These black feminists, one of whom um, was Sadia Hartman. And, you know, I just, my heart. Um, I really, really appreciate how Spillers just kind of takes this problem, right? What she sees is a problem, which is really the pathologization, as you mentioned, of the matriarchal family structure. And she, unfolds it in such a way that you're just like, woof, woof, woof. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I didn't even think about all of these different aspects. And so this text, even though it's only around about 20 pages, is very complex, mm-hmm. very dense. And we are not going to go through every single aspect. Like, we do not have the time. Um, and also, frankly, you know, like the money, like... <laughs> you know, to be going through every (laughs) single aspect of this. Um, But we can elucidate some of the concepts that that ground the present moment. And I think it's just so important for us to have this conversation. And so I'm so glad that we tackled this text this week. Um, Just so happy. And so her, at this text right here, I would call it canonical, which means Mm. like, this is the standard in the discipline. Uh, we're thinking about critical studies, thinking about psychoanalysis, which is, um, if a lot of people want to hear psychoanalysis, they think of Freud, they think of mm-hmm. just kind of like these, ant- these really outdated ways of thinking about how people think, basically. Right. But what I think I find really um, enlightening about psychoanalysis is that it tries to think about all these unconscious ways that we go about and through the world. And Mm. so this text points to this kind of unconscious undergirding of our thinking that really influences how we move through this world. And she takes psychoanalysis, this really white discipline and says, you know what, I'm going to 
use these tools and talk about how y'all got black women effed up and <laughs> she does it so well in this article and so this this article really emerges as a psychoanalytic intervention that questions the facts um and also kind of provides a historical basis to the quote-unquote facts again i'm mm. it's not real but facts in the um Mornahan report and Alyssa, have you heard of the Mornahan report well i i mean i'd seen it written in articles and i've heard people kind of mention it in documentaries so it made it started making me think that this was just something that you know was part of the common popular uh, discourse or conversations, at least in the in the U.S., and so I think it was even mentioned in in the Thirteenth or something. Um, I could be wrong, but um, yeah. So it wasn't really it wasn't until recently that I really came to learn about what its significant was for the Black community in the U.S. and like what what it did in terms of pathology. Wow, I still can't even say it. Pathologization um, of the Black family and stuff. So. You know, for, for others who may be in the same boat as me, could you like give us a little overview? Yes, I had to write a, a paper about this. <laughs> so if anybody knows something, it's me. Um, and of course, you who are listening who do know and want to chime mm-hmm. in, you know, let me know. But basically, the Moynihan Report, um, which was called The Negro Family, The Case for Action, was published in 1965. And it was written by a government official, Daniel P. Moynihan, in about three months. So he took research, most of it sociological research, which, again, sociologists, um, <laughs> and called it all. <laughs> you know, every episode, I got to say something. Um, pulled it all together in three months and wrote this report that was supposed to influence future uh, welfare legislation hmm. for um basically for Congress. And so in his report, he depicts the black family as one that is in crisis. And he is talking about the black mother and saying that she is devious and promiscuous. Um, And he concludes that black families were behind the progress of white families due to the prevalence of single parent households that are headed by black women. Mm. So according to his account and, you know, who really knows how these numbers were tabulated, um, he found that a quarter of black households uh, in 1965 were headed by single parent black women. Right. And he argues, right, that if men were in fact present in the home, black mothers emasculated them oh, as they lovely. had done. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> mean, Sapphire appears again, right? And and he's mm-hmm. and he makes this argument that that's exactly what black women were doing during slavery, right? So black mm-hmm. during slavery, black women were emasculating black men because they were doing the same jobs and, and contributing to their households even more or greater. Um, than black men were able to through their access to certain types, certain forms of domestic labor. And so he proposes a a few social solutions to raise the progress of black families, but his main proposal was for black women to be less promiscuous so that they could get married to black men and finally have that two parent household that children need in order to be productive citizens. So Basically, he's saying black women need to stop being Jezebels and Sapphires and get with the program. <laughs> like, 
y'all need to stop this whole like emasculating black men thing by earning more money than them and just mm-hmm. sit down and be a good girl and get married um, i'm telling you and you know what that's that's an idea that persists like the idea that black women emasculate black men basically like just through their presence is mm-hmm. something that is still present i mean i've heard from black men that they prefer not that they just happen to be with a white woman but they prefer to date outside their race because their mothers or sisters or babysitters or nannies or something were too dominant and it didn't make them feel safe and happy and loved and so black women get cast as these sapphires Hmm. when they and then they want someone who's docile right it's and it's ridiculous because it's just like why is your feeling about your feeling about being supported and loved rooted in my silence like Mm -hmm. why is it rooted in my erasure or like diminishing who i am why do i have to shrink for you to feel like you can be a person but again, that's, I mean, that's a part of, and, and Spillers unpacks that it's, it's a part of this kind of social order that is dependent upon the violence, um, mm-hmm. especially on black women's bodies. Yeah. And so, so it makes sense actually, right. That you, in order for you to feel good about yourself, I need to be violated because that's literally how this world works, right. That mm-hmm. is the psycho social order. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think about all the times that people have called me intimidating and <laughs> who look, I, I know it like I, again, I'm five, one and a half. <laughs> I, I'm not particularly strong if you, I mean, depending on who's gauging it, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I mean, you can hear how I sound. I can be a little pointed at times in my tone if I'm really trying to get my point across, but I tend to have like a, a warmer affect in certain um, in certain social circles. So for me to be called intimidating is really just a reach. But you're reaching mm-hmm. like what you're reaching to is this sapphire archetype, right? What you're yeah. reaching to is like, oh, because I choose to speak, um, then mm-hmm. I am thus intimidating. Like I, it would just be much better for me to just be in a corner quiet somewhere listening to you. Yeah, I mean, they're basically just making public their own insecurities. So, right. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like, how much of your insecurities would just be solved if you let go of this white supremacist patriarchal um, belief that in yes. order to be a real man, you got to dominate over people who are not cis men? Um, just let it go. We can just, we can just end the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Um, we can end just, it there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so so Spiller, she does actually get into these archetypes, but she calls mm-hmm. them the misnaming. So misnaming of black women, and it's a part of a history of what she call, calls dehumanized naming, which demonstrates the powers of distortion that the dominant community seizes at its unlawful prerogative. That was a quote from her. Not from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and also, I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, people who do psychoanalysis, but I think when she points to misnaming, she's also talking about um, this moment of recognition 
right, where Black women can never truly be seen for who they are because of all of these archetypes and myths that are constructed around them. Um, so it's like, it's almost impossible for us to really to really understand Black women or see them for who they are because we're having to go through all of um, these all of these um, archetypes, all of these misnamings, we have to sift through them to find out who Black women really are. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a really important piece to her article that we need to think about. Um, Two is is thinking about this whole thing that's emerged on Twitter now, ungendering, right? Mm-hmm. Which comes from mm-hmm. her article and thinking about ungendering, and it's corollary or it's like it's it's idea that it's attached to which is the flesh um and so basically captivity is what Hortense Spillers calls it um I'll call it enslavement but basically slavery enslavement creates the conditions for ungendering which is turning bodies or which happens when you turn bodies into flesh so brendan yeah. what are you what are you saying what, what are you talking about mean? I mean, what does that even mean <laughs> well <laughs> let, me, let me take a stab at it because this was mm-hmm. my first you know this was my first foray into into spillers or into this essay um so what i understood from the flesh is that it's something that's disembodied, it's undifferentiated. Mm-hmm. The body itself, it's a whole, it kind of implies this personhood, right? So you know, you know that a body exists, it's, it's in a particular form, whereas the flesh is formless, but it's something that's used to make people into objects mm-hmm. in order to kind of subject them to mm-hmm. physical and sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I, I would say that that encapsulates flesh in particular. And I think for Horton Spillers, flesh is attached to ethnicity in, mm. in particular. And so, and which is important when we're thinking about Black mothers, because Black mothers carry the condition of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. The law was, if your mother was enslaved and Black, you were born a slave. And so it takes this through her brilliance, right? She she calls onto all these different layers of what it means to have a body and what it means mm-hmm. to to have a body that is reproductive, that is also black, um, and how the flesh kind of encapsulates all of that. Um, and so, yeah, Spillers talks about the body being this kind of liberated subject position, whereas the flesh belongs to the captor. Mm. Um, or, you know, the captor would be the slave master or the literal captor, the person who literally stole your body um, from Africa or um, the person who is stealing your body through forcing you to do certain types of labor. And what's also she, she mentions is that black flesh or flesh, some would say black bodies today, right. Mm -hmm. Serve as a source of pleasure for people who, d- who do not occupy or live in this position of the flesh and also a site of mutilation. Um, and so this, the actual physical marking, she talks about the physical marking and the physical violence of slavery helps denote who belongs in this flesh category and who belongs mm-hmm. in the body category. Because the thing about flesh is that, because everybody can be mutilated, right? right? Everyone can experience violence. Mm-hmm. But what makes flesh flesh 
is this un the fact that it is unprotected violence. It's mm-hmm. unprotected mutilation. Right. So a white person who might not have been a slave owner but could experience violence would not be able to occupy the space of the flesh because their whiteness protects them. So that violence could still be, you know, could be marching rights for a lynch mob, right? Like that violence could still cause some type of legal or social reaction that calls for that, that person's protection. Whereas we know with enslaved people, right? Think shit would go down all the time. And like, Mm -hmm. it would just be what it is like, because they were treated as property. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting about this piece is that ungendering, I mean, there are two ways that it happens from, from, from my reading anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, ungendering happens in this liminal space and liminal is an idea. It comes from Victor Turner. Um, but it's when you're betwixt in between. It's when you're not one thing. It's, it's when you stop being one thing, but you're not the other thing yet. So it's, you know, it's kind of like the idea of the adolescent. You're not quite a child. You're not really an adult. Um, and so ungendering, it happens in this space where you're neither nor, you know, when you're, quote, suspended in the oceanic, that's what she says. Um, So, you know, you're no longer African because you've been stolen from your land, but you're not yet American. And so through that process, you become flesh and you are ungendered. And I I found that really, I found that really uh, just beautiful and captivating. And, you know, it's something that I'm thinking about with some of my own work that I won't get into now, but... Um, you know, but what happens in between these passages, you know, how is it that you go from one thing to another and ungendering is, I, I think is a really, I think that there are other applications to this idea, you know, we can think about, you know, the ways that people, you know what, I will just get into it. So, <laughs> I mean, it's something that I'm thinking about with my work, um, with Haitians and Martinicans, which is something that I did for some previous research, but there's an idea that people in Martinique have about Haitians is they're like, they're, oh, they're so resilient, you know, they're so creative and all this work mm-hmm. that they do. And they're, you know, they're kind of often used as, um, as kind of like a, like a role model kind of, or not, not a role model, but you'll, you'll kind of see them evoked in literature or mm-hmm. they'll, you know, there was a lot of r- literature written where, you know, there were Haitian characters or about Haitians, like Amos Césaire. But, uh, so they have this particular view of Haitians when they're not in Martinique, when they are in Martinique, they're negatively stereotyped. They're stigmatized, you know, as boat people and people who live in these, you know, in squats in Martinique and live in squalor. And so there are these like two very different ideas. And so one of the things mm-hmm. that I've been thinking about is just like what happens in that passage from one place to another, what happens mm-hmm. from them being these, you know, very, um, cultured, resilient people to being, to in Martinique, ha- just having like no, well, having zero interest in them or to the point where they are stigmatized. It's just, yeah, so it's, it's something that I have been thinking about. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and, and you've never, we've never talked about this before. So I'm, mm-hmm. I find it really fascinating. I think immediately. It's mostly in my head. <laughs> yeah, immediately for me, it brings up understandings of Blackness and how, Blackness is tied particularly to a Haitian identity Mm. um, in a lot of times in a pejorative sense. 
of just like, you know, even though Haitians were the first ones to free themselves mm-hmm. from slavery and from colonialism um, in, a, in a particular way, how that, yes, that's a spirit, right? The revolutionary spirit that you want to hold on to, the creativity and the resilience that you want to yeah. hold on to. But then there's a certain type of blackness that can be associated um, with Haitians that is like, Again, the voodoo, I mean, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a mm-hmm. pretty problematic, I would say, ethnography, right? That, that mm-hmm. calls back to these like things of, of, around blackness um, in Haiti and magical, you know, magic and, and solidifying Haitians as like, kind of these, these people that need to be ostracized, even though like they can still be admired for their rejection of um of colonialism yes. so yeah, yeah. It, I think that would be just be really fascinating and you pointing to like how ungendering really speaks to a liminal space I think I'm gonna have to sit and reflect on that too because mm. uh, I never really thought about it as as liminal for me I thought it I thought of it mm. as just like defined <laughs> categories I guess right um because I think also I'm wondering about gender as a destination because I'm thinking liminality then I'm thinking okay you're between two places which means you have an origin and a destination Mm -hmm. and it's like okay it's it's gendering the destination in this sense probably not but um at least in my I don't know I don't know I'm not Hortense Spillers I mean she's (laughs) she and I you know she's so brilliant um and what I understood um, from this article was thinking about how captivity and slavery renders gender, which, as I understand it, as you have this category of men, usually cis um, men who have this patriarchal power and domination, right? So they're right. able to exert this power through domination of you know, non-cis men but also this kind of this binary, right? So this binary, which on the other end of the binary is women who mm-hmm. quote unquote benefit from patriarchal power through protection from certain forms of labor. But then women become like, particularly like you are supposed to be in the domestic sphere and this is your sphere. Mm-hmm. And what ungendering does is kind of says, okay, this construction of gender that's rooted in these white supremacist capitalist, you know, patriarchal, cissectist, all of these things, homophobic understandings around gender is irrelevant mm-hmm. for when it comes to Black folks. It's irrelevant when it comes to Black enslaved people and irrelevant when it comes to people who are in the category of the flesh. Right. She starts talking about womanhood or femininity then being attributed to motherhood. Like we can mm-hmm. then, all right, can we think about womanhood through motherhood which is something, again, that was denied Black women during the time of enslavement. Right. Like, your body served a specific mm-hmm. purpose, and that was to to breed more, more bodies to serve right. as a source of labor. Um, and so, and even if that was not necessarily happening to all Black women all the time, mm-hmm. right, symbolically psychologically, socially, right? That was your purpose. So even if you were not really able to bear children, lots of enslaved Black women who were barren for a variety of reasons 
were killed, right? Or like you lost your value. So it was like, what can mm-hmm. you do if you can't bring about new enslaved bodies? You could be killed, you could be sold off, you could be just a, a, a host of things. Right. And so um, Spillers points to that, right? This kind of this erasure, again, of, of violence against Black women. Like we come to understand mm-hmm. violence against Black women in slavery primarily being rape and violation of their bodies. Right. Um, but we also need to remember that Black women, as, as Sojourner Truth points out, right, she also was, it was exposed to the same type of brutalities mm-hmm. that enslaved African men were, including lynching, yes. including, you know, all of these kind of masculinized forms of violence that, that can be taken up during the civil rights movement. And what I find to be really interesting is, is during that time, right? It was it was not even about black women's bodies being violated as like a violation of black women. It was about black men not being able to protect them. Mm. And so that was the true harm. The the harm of black women being raped during slavery was not that, oh, these black women were hurt. It was that actually black men were demasculinized through raping of black women because they could not then protect them. Yeah. And <laughs> which is which mm-hmm. is just like, again, like this call to this kind of patriarchal form of power and domination where it's like, well, we should be able to call ourselves men, which mean men protect women. And it's like, actually, how can we move away from that? Because yeah, that's not what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you, that you really point to something really insightful there and thinking around liminality. So I'm going to have to think about that some more <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so Brendan, since you know you've you've been reading this and you've really been thinking about it for a while, particularly in relation to your work, you know, what do you think would be like the big takeaway for somebody uh, reading Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe? Great, I think that's a great question. Um, so I think people should understand, and Spiller spells this out so well, right? That sexual, symbolic, and physical violence against Black women is not an aberration. Nope. Right? It's not a mistake. And it's not just, I think, as we're moving towards our consciousness publicly now for saying, oh, it's norm. It's the norm. Black women experience it the most. Um, and I think it actually, what would it caused us to a radical shift in understanding that actually all of these forms of violence is actually the glue that holds a society together. Violence against Black women is not just an object or something that just happens. It's also the negation and the erasure of that violence. So what I mean by that is that we know that violence against Black women happens, but this violence, another set of violence or something that makes it more, um, more apparent is that through popular, public, and even private discourses, this violence is distorted, it's misnamed, or it's renamed, right? Or or even mm-hmm. denied altogether, right? So it's like, oh, you Black women don't even really experience this, the stuff that you're saying. Or, oh, that's not rape. That's just, you know, he was just trying to talk to you. Or, you know, yeah. that's actually, you know, mm-hmm. that's, love that's a part of love enduring this type of violence um okay you i mean that is mm -hmm. a perfect segue actually into our next segment which is what in the world (laughs) like what what in in the the world world? (laughs) (laughs) 
That is perfect. Just thinking about the way that violence against women is normalized, but <sighs> which is something that we saw, or sorry, violence against black women specifically is so normalized, which is what we saw with Meg Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez. So you might have heard, or you might not have, because the media has kind of dropped the ball on this one. Like, can you imagine how much and for how long people would be talking about this situation if Justin Bieber had shot oh, Selena Gomez in the foot or something like that? about it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, no. And I mean, we shouldn't not, you know, we shouldn't stop hearing about it. But I want to draw attention to the fact that there might have been one article here or there, something like that. But so you may have heard, you may not have. On July 12th, Tory Lanez allegedly, and we're saying allegedly because we're trying to keep it legal up in here, allegedly <laughs> shot Meg Thee Stallion multiple times and she was struck in both feet. And so there are just so many things to talk about like, here. But it's all love. Like we're all, you know, this is coming from love because we love mm, Meg Thee Stallion. I really do. Brendan, who were you for Halloween this year or last year, 2019? For 2020. Um, <laughs> exactly. <is> canceled. Um, <laughs> I was Megan the Stallion for Halloween last year. I had a nice little cowboy hat, yes. a little, you know, leotard thing popping. And <laughs> I will I will never forget when we were sitting there having Friday lunch. You know, it was Friday lunch. It's this, it was a little initiative to bring the professors and the graduate students together. And, you know, they would they'd have this huge uh, catered mm-hmm. lunch or something. And we it would, would be also gone in five chat. minutes. And it was, the food would always be gone in five <laughs> Absolutely. minutes. Absolutely. <laughs> because you know graduate students. We're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're all on the freaking diet. So. <laughs> Hilarious. So we sit down and we have this, you know, an older male professor and we're talking about Halloween and, and he's saying, oh, what are you going as for Halloween? And I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to go as Frida Kahlo or something. Oh. <laughs> and he's like, you know, what, what about you, Brendan? And <laughs> Brendan's like, I'm going as uh, Meg the Stallion. And he was like, oh, who's that? How, you know, how, what kind of costume, what kind of costume would that be? And, <laughs> and Brendan, Brendan and I make eye contact and I'm just like, how, how am she I going to get myself get out of through that this one? one? Um, literally, oh my goodness. I was like, wow, I really should have lied or been like, oh, <laughs> you, you did a, you did a great job. It was just like, oh, she's a rapper who had, she's from Texas. And so she has this kind of cowboy, (laughs) sexy cowboy aesthetic, I think is what I said. And, (laughs) and he was just like, oh, um, and then we kind of ended the conversation (laughs) there, um, before I could really embarrass myself, but Yeah, professors, just just don't ask us about our week. <laughs> Basically, don't don't ask me what I'm doing for Halloween. Um, but yeah. I, I don't know. I just really, for me, just really like this story brought up my own experiences as a survivor of intimate partner violence. Um, and I really admire Megan. I, she's an Aquarius. She just gets out there. She is very strong in her opinions and she's been painted as a sapphire i think a few times in media yes um because of her height okay first of all she's aquarius gang yes Yes. that's why she don't care she's like i don't care what y'all think like i Mm -hmm. i love it um yeah no i mean one of the things that i think is so important to point out is that this is part of a genealogy like in the same way that we are talking about literature and scholarship being a genealogy like this is also a genealogy and not just the violence 
that Tory Lanez perpetrated, but also the media coverage and the way that people have been reacting to it. So, you know, we always, genealogy is like a line of descent. Who is mm-hmm. speaking to whom? Um, and it seems like every generation kind of has one of these domestic violence stories. And I think, you know, there's mm-hmm. Ike and Tina, mm. Bobby and Whitney. And for, for us millennials, it was, of course, the Rihanna and Chris Brown <laughs> abuse, that, which was awful. And now, you know, we're seeing in, in this in 2020, the situation with Megan Tory. So, you know, we could say that this genealogy has kind of carried on these generational curses as well as or as a result of these stereotypes. Yeah. And I think what also is in this genealogy, too, is, is painting abuse as this necessary part of love, um, which allows mm. society to excuse these violent actions against women in general, but particularly black women. Um, and, yeah. you know, our guy, Tyler Perry, is another popular example of like depictions of what black women should expect in relationships basically telling us that you know nobody should love you so take what you can get even you know if it comes at the expense of your life or your happiness um Mm -hmm. and that's just like ridiculous (laughs) it's like no we should be able to expect more exactly i mean every episode we're gonna talk about I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, we've got We've been like, we could do a whole episode on just Tyler mm-hmm. Perry films, but maybe, maybe for next next <laughs> semester, for semester two. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Like, love not, you know, that's not um, a reason to excuse violence against Black women. And I think that, like, that was encapsulated by Drea Michelle fixing her mouth to say. She wants a man to love her enough to shoot her in the foot if she tries to leave too. I'm sorry, but that is toxic. And let us just be clear, love and abuse, they cannot, should not, do like, not. No, like, no, like, sis, you need to fix your mouth to... Let me stop because I'm now I'm about to be like, okay, Drea, <laughs> the, all the jokes about her um, and her child that, you know, I was like, who is this child and what is she... It was like... Why, why do you think that this I, is the yeah. issue to speak on? Um, and especially to say that instead of being in support with another black woman and mm-hmm. you're like, I wish someone would do this to me. And it's like, and you have to think about it. Like, no, you don't like you. Re- you really don't want anyone to shoot you. Yeah. You just want to feel loved in a world that tells you that you can't be and you won't be. Right. And so Ooh. it's like, mm. that's what you want. You don't want the actual violence. You want the love. But mm-hmm. we've been told that, like, literally, those two things must coexist for Black women. Um, yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. like, ugh. Yeah. And and she got she got dropped from Fenty. I mean, obviously, that wasn't going to go Mm-mm. over well. Was it Fenty or was it Savage? Savage Fenty. Fenty. Yeah. Savage. So, I mean, she got dropped from that, which that joke was never going to go over well with Rihanna. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I want to just say that Rihanna, she stands for black women. Like, I love that. She, you know, she did that. She sent Meg some flowers. Beyonce sent Meg flowers. And so there have been people, black women, especially who are rallying Mm -hmm. behind Meg and supporting her and saying, you know, get well soon, because that's not something we saw. There were the jokes. And John X Genius on Twitter, he said it best. He was like, niggas had jokes for Meg, but prayers for Ye. So, again, it's just like, black men get sympathy, black women 
do not. And I think that, you know, we can talk about like what happened on her Instagram when, you know, when she went live on Instagram and all of that stuff. But like, I remember when, you know, the Rihanna and Chris Brown situation happened. um, And, you know, you know, I'm not even going to talk about it, but it was a game that you could play online and it was just a disgusting game. I don't even think it's worth bringing back up on this podcast, (sighs) but it was, it was disgusting. And so, you know, just the way that people make jokes about right this violence is right and ridiculous. it points to what we were talking about earlier and thinking around the flesh and like the pleasure in mm. mutilation and so it's just like why is it that people would want to even make a game out of this type of violence right there's a certain kind of pleasure that people get from thinking about hurting black black people but black women in particular um and yeah. Yeah, I think about too, also in, in this Megan situation, right? Like that that line of pleasure in people going through and, and someone on Twitter um, misnamed it as ungendering, but they actually misgendered Meg, right? Meg is a cis woman and mm-hmm. saying that, oh, you know, Tory Lanez discovered that she was trans and that's why he, um, he harmed her. And yeah. It was Cameron. Mm. Cameron. We're going to name. We're going to name. It was Cameron. He said something like, you know, what? I'm just going to read. The- he said that Tory Lanez saw the D and started shooting. And first of all, calling on these histories of black women as masculine, not real women, of course. Mm-hmm. The transphobia all up and through that. The unacceptable yes. transphobia because trans women do not need to be killed or harmed for any reason, like this period. So just just all of that too. And just like the jokes that were being made about Meg, right? And it was framed as a joke, right? Like, oh, like, ha ha, you know, because she's this tall woman, she's brown skinned. um, And a lot of men would feel small next to her. Tory Lanez is a short man. And so, you know, if you are into men, Mm -hmm. you know, cis men, and they are short, you just know you might endure a level of just like them insecurities. Like, and that yeah. I think that also played a role into it because she is so much taller than him. I think Tory Lanez is like five three or like maybe even that. And so mm-hmm. who knows what was ha- what happened in that car exactly? All we know is that a black woman ended up being hurt. And and then to see the public reaction, which which was to deny and dismiss her experiences and to misgender her and to misname yeah. her in such a way and to characterize her. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it shows that even when you are seen as beautiful and desirable, that can be taken from you instantly. Um, yeah. The world can turn on you at any time. And as you were saying, I mean, they essentially labeled her as a, as, as a sapphire. They were saying, mm-hmm. oh, you know, she she was putting her hands on Tori and this, that, and the other. And I mean, the same thing happened with Rihanna. People, I, I remember people saying she didn't deserve to get beat up like that, but Mm-mm. she shouldn't have been putting her hands on Chris Brown. Mm-mm. And so it was just like, you get labeled in this way and in that sense, it justifies the abuse that was perpetrated against you. And so, I mean, Meg had to go, she went on Instagram right. and she was like, she did, she had to tell people, I didn't put my hands on anybody. 
And she specifically said, I didn't deserve to get shot. And it's like the fact that you even have to say that out loud, that people would make it seem like that's the case. It's disturbing. And I mean, obviously it's indicative of our culture of victim blaming, particularly when those victims are women, particularly when they are black women, and Mm -hmm. especially when they are trans women, Mm -hmm. which Meg is not. I'm just saying, adding that on because- we We're know talking about it all. We're right. talking about it all. The violence compounds um, as the marginalization increases. The violence compounds, right? Yes. So, and and also just like thinking about how people she gets on IG live and people are like, "Don't cry. You're so strong. You're so strong. Oh my gosh, we love you. Please don't mm. cry." And it's like, first of all stupid head I'm, I'm like let me find like you know she doesn't use that word she says mfers like i got shot in the foot what do you mean i can't cry by getting shot yeah. in both of my feet all right i'm like are, are people but it's just again strong black woman mm-hmm. stereotype that calls upon these like these archetypes and where that, you're just like us humanity essentially right like you can't She's da- she's like damned if she doesn't, damned if she doesn't. Like, yeah. if she didn't get on IG Live to speak, people would say, "Oh, Megan, you're trying to protect this person who harmed you." Oh, and it's and it's just I, like mm. survivors are not compelled to tell their stories every time you, as a person who does not know her and who she is, feels like you're entitled to this. And I feel like this is specifically the issue with Black women Mm -hmm. um, and and issues of violence is we are not allowed the time to process or be or anything. It's like we have to always be open because, again, our bodies are seen as things that that must do the will of whoever captures us. I have very strong feelings about that as well. The way that we expect survivors of abuse, police brutality, and so on, like especially, especially when they're black women, they're expected to become spokespeople about their pain. And it's like, forget your personal and private healing process. Use that experience for the greater good, for the betterment and the advancement of black people. And I just think, where's the time for us? Mm -hmm. Can't something just be for us? No. For me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, if you create it and you protect that space, um, mm-hmm. so many activist spaces I've been in where that has been kind of the going politic of don't take time to heal. You're instantly, you have to make yourself a martyr and save your community. Um, and it's like, but who's going to save us? Yeah. Who is going to protect us? Mm-hmm. Because usually what happens is we become the martyrs and we become spokespeople about our own pain. But then Black men, Black cis men especially, are still centered in that. So it's like, this happens to Black women, but in order to protect Black people, which what we really mean, protect Black men, is we got to do X, Y, and Z. Or Black yes. men, or the common, like, Black men only beat up on Black women because they are subjected to all these forms of racist violence. No, and then, like, that, that is the thinking that's behind that, you, um, as if Black... Like, as if Black women aren't also subject to that violence. Yeah, and um, I mean, you, you, you know I have a rant about this. But one, one comment that I did see, I'm not sure if it was on a, a post about Meg the Stallion or not, but um, a Black woman commented, this was on Twitter, and she said, you know, Black women really are the most unprotected group of people in the world. Mm-hmm. And a Black man replied, bl- replied and said, after Black men. And I was just like, you see, here you go. Here you go again. Here we go. Centering 
yourself and actually also proving the point. Right. Just proving the point. But I mean, there was a really important comparison made by Alexis Gionde. And if I pronounced that wrong, please let me know as well. So she did a post about intimate partner violence and she made this comparison that in 2018, 215 black people were killed by police. Meanwhile, in 2016, 272 black women were killed by a lover, spouse, or ex. So we're not safe on the streets. We're not safe in our homes. No. And so when Brendan, so, so Brendan, like when you said black men kill us in the last episode, you were being very literal. (laughs) And a lot of it comes down. (laughs) A lot of it comes down to this narrative that black women are emasculating. I mean, I told you the other day that like, I don't even think we need to say toxic masculinity is redundant. Masculinity is inherently toxic. And I don't want to say that masculinity is fragile because like whiteness, it is dangerous, it is durable, and it is enduring and it kills. But this idea that circulates, that tells black men that our very existence, an existence that has become required of us because of white supremacy and systemic racism, to say that it's threatening to their manhood is part of the reason that they harm us. They put us in our place in order to claim their rightful spot, rightful mm-hmm. spot in this place created for them by patriarchy. And yet black women, we are required for masculinity and whiteness to exist. So mm-hmm. as Spillers wrote, she wrote this is like in the first paragraph of, of that essay. She says, my country needs me. And if I were not here, I would have to be invented. So black women are indispensable yet disposable. Yeah, I think that I don't... I'm like, you know, is masculinity inherently toxic? In my opinion, no. But I do think if we put it in as you as you situate it in within this kind of matrix, right, of all these oppressions that it does, especially in this particular society, masculinity can function as this like toxic form of being. And so I think the question is, how do we get to the point where we can abolish these gender norms and notions about living that allow for people to have a structural reason to exact violence against each other, Mm. right? And and also for that violence to be um, erased, right? So like, or justified, right? So this whole thing around rape culture is this idea that like we've actually believed that women and girls mostly right, should experience violation mm-hmm. and that men should be the ones that violate them. And so how do we dismantle that? How do we yeah. move past that? Um, and uh, in the Black Women's March um, that was conducted in 2017, they have like a short piece from their manifesto where they talk about, they say, um, and I quote, in this moment of realization, once again, that we are all we've got We call on all Black Lives Matter, movement for Black lives and Black communities at large to march especially for the lives and rights of Black trans women, for the gender non-conforming and for our Black girls in all the 50 states, plus the so-called territories and all the African diaspora. By their very being, it is through Black trans women and Black girls that the revolutionary potential of our entire Black community resides. Theirs are the Black lives who underscore the poignancy of this moment mm. in a future where all Black women and Black communities are liberated from persistent, imposed, and internalized 
axes of gender oppression, domination, and discrimination. Yes. So we we have internalized all these forms of oppression that mm-hmm. make it so that we can point to these forms of violence and see them as like systemic and structural. And so we put out the call, right, to protect all Black women. Mm-hmm. And I want to highlight in this moment um, that in the last week, there have been reports of at least three Black trans women who have been killed, one in the Bronx. And so far in 2020, there's been 28 trans people who have been killed. Um, So here are the names of the Black women who have been killed this week. We want to honor them and lift them up now. Alejandra Manacuco, who is a Colombian Black trans sex worker who was killed by negligence of the paramedics who refused to take her to the hospital because she was HIV positive. We lift up the name of Tiffany Harris, who died at the age of 32. She was stabbed to death by reportedly by her partner. Um, This is the woman who lived in the Bronx and she was left to die in the hallway. Mm. Quisha Hardy, and excuse me if I'm not pronouncing your name right, but we want to honor you, Quisha, here, um, who was shot to death in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. These women, these, these women, these Black trans women in particular are losing their lives because of the ways that we think about womanhood and the ways that we think about femininity and the ways that violence is justified against Black women in particular. And this has to end. It has to end. We're going to end it there. I really want that to be the last thing that we really talk about because I want people to leave with that in their mind, meditating on that and really, really spend time thinking about that. That was beautiful. Thank you for that, Brendan. And again, we uplift those names. So thank you all for listening. I know that was, that was mm-hmm. a little bit heavy, but you know, we appreciate you sticking all the way through this conversation. And you know, we very much welcome your feedback. So you can send us an email to zorasdaughterspod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram at zorasdaughters or Twitter at zoras underscore daughters. And please subscribe on whatever platform you're using. That really helps us with our ratings. And it also helps you because you'll... You know, you'll be automatically notified of when our next episode comes out. So, oh yes. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. That also helps us. Yes, please. Yes. We're five-star. We're, (laughs) you know, it's it's only real hot girl shit out here. Oh, thank you, Megan, for that. Real hot girl. Yes, Megan. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So, we appreciate y'all so much uh, from the bottom of our Aquarius and Gemini hearts. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And we also want to say that we love and support Megan Thee Stallion Mm. and her healing during this time. Um, And also you and all of you who are listening, if you are healing, thank you so much for listening and remember that you must take care of yourselves and we must take care of each other. So until next time, bye. Bye.